Show me heaven. I am who I am. Donna Taylor, a true story. I would never have believed my life if I had never lived it. When Donna Taylor was three years old, her father ran off with another woman. Devastated, her mother took a near-fatal overdose. All of a sudden, Donna's carefree, sun-filled childhood was catapulted into turmoil, instability and trauma. Trauma that would play out time and time again over the course of the next four decades. This is her story. My earliest memories are sun-filled summer days spent with my three older brothers playing in the garden of our house near the seaside in Skegness. Mark, my eldest and favourite brother, would push me along on a little tricycle, while Gary and Kevin zoomed their model aeroplanes through the air and our dog Robbie ran around us barking. Every now and then we would sneak into the next door neighbour's garden to steal apples. My brothers climb in the trees to shake the branches so that the fruit landed at my feet. The sweet taste of those apples merges in my mind with the sweetness and innocence of those early years, a golden time that I thought would last forever. My parents didn't seem unhappy when I was very little. My mum had never had much money growing up, so she was thrilled to be living in a large house with several acres of land. There were even spare bedrooms for her to do bed and breakfasts for the holiday makers in the summer, bringing in extra income to supplement her wages from her job stacking veg at a local shop. My dad was a long-distance lorry driver, although he'd previously had his own business delivering produce in Reading, where I had been born. Mum grew up in a bungalow in Hampshire, where my granddad was the driver of the number 14 bus. She had a beautiful singing voice and in her spare time would perform at holiday camps with her friends. She met my dad at a dance one day and before long they were walking up the aisle. But her newly wedded bliss was shattered when my nan returned home one day to find that my granddad had gassed himself in the oven. A happy-go-lucky, outgoing man, his suicide came as a total shock to the whole village and it shook my poor mum to the core. But if she was hoping for stability in her, her own life, it was not to be. One day, when I was only three, my dad suddenly disappeared, running off with another woman without telling my mum. Not only that, but it turned out that the business he had run in Reading had gone bankrupt, and his debts had finally caught up with him. We were going to lose our house, and my mum, with four children, and another baby on the way was suddenly all alone and penniless. While we struggled financially, we later discovered that my father had booked up with a rich woman who could afford to employ a private chef and gardener. Unable to face her situation, Mum attempted to follow in her father's footsteps and took a massive overdose. Waking up from my afternoon nap, I toddled into my mum's room a little while later and saw her passed out on the bed. A policeman was standing over her, slapping her face repeatedly in an attempt to revive her. Soon the wail of an ambulance sounded, and my mother was whisked off to hospital. The golden age had ended, and my life would never be the same again. 
The next morning I awoke in a strange bed, in a strange place. I ate my breakfast in a room full of other children, not understanding where I was or why my older brothers were sat on a different table from me. I stared at the bowl of cornflakes in front of me and my eyes filled with tears. I wanted to cry out, where's mummy? But my fear and my confusion were so great that I couldn't speak. Instead, I ran back to the bedroom and hid under the blankets. While my mother was being treated in a psychiatric hospital, we four remained in the children's home. My brothers separated from me in the boys' wing. I was too young, too scared to speak or eat, and after a few days, a doctor was called. He declared... There was nothing wrong with me. But no one thought to explain to a three-year-old what was happening or why her mother was gone. Then, just as suddenly, Mum was back, standing at the door of the children's home with her arms outstretched to us as if nothing had happened. The only difference was that now she wasn't pregnant. We all piled into her little blue Austin 1100 and set off merrily. But instead of going home, as I expected, we turned up at my nan's tiny council flat in Reading. Us kids bedded down for the night under blankets on the floor while mum took the sofa. My nan, painfully aware that the council wouldn't approve of four children living in her one-bedroom flat, had brought us jigsaw puzzles and teddies to try and keep us quiet. But it was impossible, and soon the neighbours had complained about the noise. Social services came round and were horrified to find all of us squashed into the tiny apartment. We were promptly kicked out and spent the next few nights in a bed and breakfast. Naively, I thought we were simply going on holiday and couldn't believe my luck when we were given fresh orange juice with our breakfast in the morning. After a few nights, however, the holiday came to an end. Mum could no longer afford the bed and breakfast, and we moved on to a boarding house that was far less charming. Its other inhabitants were prostitutes and violent drunks, and we heard them shouting and swearing as we tried to sleep, cuddled up together on a mattress on the floor. After Mum witnessed a man beating a woman almost to death, she knew we had to move on. That night, we heard someone try on our door handle as we slept, and Mum decided there was no time to lose. We all climbed out of the window and made a run for it. There was nowhere for us to go now but the little Austin 1100. So we tried our best to settle down in the car for the night. Mum and Mark took the front seats. Gary and Kevin lay top to toe in the back. And I, I climbed onto the parcel shelf, squashing myself against the rear windscreen. Suddenly, this didn't feel so much like a holiday. Despite Mum's best efforts to make it all feel like great fun. The shame she must have felt as the sun rose, the passers-by peered in at the children asleep on the back seat, is unimaginable. Worse, the press soon got hold of the story and the plight of the homeless single mum with her kids living in a car was splashed all over Reading. The newspaper story did at least get the council's attention 
and we were quickly offered a house. It was on Charles Street, in the rougher end of track town. But we didn't care, at least we would have a roof over our heads. As we stepped out of the Austin 1100, however, Mum's face fell. The house was in a Victorian terrace, but it was virtually derelict and had in fact been condemned. The brickwork was crumbling and as we stepped tentatively through the door, the stench of mice and damp hit us. That night, as we lay on the bare floorboards, looking up at the peeling wallpaper, once again Mum tried to cheer us up and make the best of it. But the sound of mice scurrying across the floorboards terrified me and I barely slept. After everything we had been through, Mum was determined not to let us go under. She quickly got a job as an administrator at the Social Services Department in Reading and from then on, work became her lifeline. Whatever else life threw at her, she turned up for her job each and every morning and did as much overtime as she could. It gave her security and stability. But I was later to realise that it also provided her with an escape route when things got tough at home. Bit by bit, we were able to afford a few pieces of second-hand furniture and with some rugs thrown down over the bare floorboards, the crumbling old house began to feel a little more homely. But even though Dad had treated her so badly, Mum craved the support and stability of a man in her life. And soon she had someone new who was far from stepfather material. Mum first met Ray when she was singing in a local pub and he was in there doing what he did best, drinking. A smiley Geordie geezer with a 50s style teddy boy quiff and watery blue eyes. He was sociable and friendly enough and when he wasn't drunk he would have given you the shirt off his back. But his insatiable thirst for alcohol overtook all else. He had been in the forces in his younger days but had gone AWOL and since then had spent a bit of time in prison. He had odd jobs here and there, but rarely seemed to work, instead dedicating his time to his favourite activity. Soon, Ray had moved in with us at Charles Street and while my poor mum went out to earn a living for all of us, he invited his croonies over to drink with him from morning to night. He would start early, drinking spirits out of a mug in the morning and pretending to us kids that it was tea. If he didn't have enough money to buy spirits, he would glug aftershave instead. As I lay in bed at night, I could hear my mum and Ray arguing about his drinking and knew that the fight sometimes got physical. But no matter how bad it got, mum just couldn't bring herself to throw him out. The last time she had been left alone, she had almost died and she couldn't go back to feeling like that. Ray's presence made family life stressful for all of us, but it seemed to affect my youngest brother, Kevin, the most. He and Ray rubbed each other up the wrong way and argued constantly. Eventually, Kevin got so desperate that he decided to run away. Off he went to the local park where he built a den out of branches and leaves before coming back to fetch his sister for company. 
I took his hand reluctantly and followed him to the park, but as we sat there under the canopy, which was now dripping with rainwater, I wondered whether even Charles Street, with all its shouting and fighting, was better than this. Kevin, I said quietly, you know Mum's got sausages for tea. I knew they were his favourite, and I could see the internal struggle as he weighed up the sausages against his miserable life in the crumbling house with the drunk, angry stepfather. <laughs> All right then, I'll come back, he said reluctantly. We returned to Charles Street, our absence not yet having been noticed. But that night, Kevin carved I Hate Ray into the headboard of Mother's bed in silent protest. Three or four years after Mum and Ray got together, the council finally came good and got us a proper home. It was in a new development on Blythe Walk, South Reading, and at the builders were just finishing up. Mum got to choose which one she wanted. She picked out number eight. And we all moved in full of hope for our fresh start. The house wasn't grand, but it had three bedrooms, fitted carpets and even a little back garden, although the council had refused to provide any grass for the lawn. Mark and I shared the second bedroom, while Kevin and Gary slept in bunk beds in the box room. But if we'd hoped to leave our problems behind us, we were sadly mistaken. The animosity between Kevin and Ray only got worse, as did Ray's drinking. To, find, to fund his addiction, he even began to sell our belongings without Mum's permission. One day she came home to find the fridge freezer gone, flogged by Ray for booze money. I attended a local primary school about 20 minutes walk away near my mum's Nan's tiny council flat and every Tuesday and Thursday I went back to hers for tea. Those afternoons were my sanctuary, my escape from eight blithe walk. As my nan cooked my favourite dinner of faggots, chips and peas, she would let me dress up in her high heels that she never wore anymore because of her arthritis, and drape myself in her old costume jewellery. Then we would sit down together over our simple meal and she would tell me stories about the war and how they had been bombed out of Doodleburg. 